Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Matthew 4, a uh, long time ago, uh, actually right after the uh, uh, events in Israel, uh, we, I, my goal was to just in, in one Sunday evening say, uh, how do we think about the issue of evil? Uh, the slaughter of, of men, women, and children, I think, is evil. Uh, call me a conspiracy theorist or whatever term we don't like anymore. And, um, and that was supposed to be a three-part, you know, three, three points. It's turned into three sermons, so I ask, ask your, your forgiveness. But I, I want us to, to, to finish that uh, here this evening um, to, so we can keep working through how do we understand it, particularly in this very broken world. We, we need biblical answers for these difficult issues. Uh, with that, Matthew chapter 4, we want to read three verses. If you'll stand with me, reverence to God's word. We'll start in verse 23. And this is right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all sick, all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to um, have it open up your word. We believe it. Uh, may we be transformed by it. But help us, Lord, as we, we navigate this broken world full of evil, uh, that we are able to understand it and to see that the gospel is the hope we have um, um, in facing it. Uh, Lord, we, 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 we've, we've been confronted with it on our television screens. Help us with faith um, engage it so that, so that through the gospel it may be conquered. So help us as believers. And may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. See you. In April of 1793, some of you all were there, a, a British Baptist by the name of William Carey uh, boarded a ship and moved from England to India where he would dedicate the rest of his life to missions. Many consider Carey to be the father of modern-day mission movement. In many ways, he was. He was not the first in the modern era to do it. He was actually an African-American, a former slave, who went down to Jamaica, if, if you want to do in terms of who came first. Uh, but Carey, nonetheless, is the one who established a small mission society in England who then supported his work there in India. When he went down there, it took him nine long years to lead a single person to Jesus. Now, I, whenever, whenever, I just want to pause on that for a minute. This is free. Uh, what if we had a missionary come here and says, I've been at such and such place for five years and no one has embraced Christ. The only people who come to church are me, my wife, and my two kids and my dog. And not the cat, because you can't get the cat to really pay attention to anything that you say or do anyways. And for five years, we're, we're supporting that missionary, we're praying for that missionary, all that sort of stuff. I mean, no doubt we would start thinking, you know, did we send the wrong guy? And no doubt the missionary would start thinking, did God send the wrong guy? Nine years before a single convert was made, but once he did, countless conversions came forward. While focusing on the salvation of souls, that is something he certainly did, and I would recommend any biography. I've got the one by uh, Timothy George is excellent. We had to read in seminary. Highly recommended to you, but there's dozens of others. Or just Google it if, if you want. Uh, if you're Googling Keith Green, Google William Carey. 
But while he was focusing on the salvation of souls, he also prioritized the reformation of society. For example, he translated the Bible to multiple languages. He and his associates translated the Bible into over 40 languages and dialects. To me, that is the gift of tongues, because I ain't got it. And there's weirdos out there who do. And God uses those weirdos. Um, uh, he launched schools, boarding schools, girls' schools, education centers. In fact, there is still, I think this is true, you, while you're Googling, add this to it. I think there is still a college named after him. I could be wrong on that. I know there's a Baptist church still named after him. Um, by 1817, Carey and his associates opened 103 schools with an average attendance of over 6,700 pupils. So get off Google, pull up your uh, calculator on your phone. Uh, 103 schools with an average of 6,700. So for those of you who went to public school in Owen County, take 6,700 times 103. That's how many people he reached through these education centers. He fought against the slave trade, infanticide, and euthanasia. One of the things that the locals would do is they would expose uh, infants born with deformities or those who refused their mother's milk. And if, if you've ever studied uh, ancient history, the idea of exposure is something that sadly you will come across. And what exposure is, and Romans were very, they, they, the, the Roman men had the rights over their wife and kids. So if, if a Roman man didn't like uh, the child born him, maybe he wanted a daughter or maybe when a son got a daughter, that was very common, is you would expose the child. That is, you would take the child outside of the city, out in the wilderness, and whatever happened, happened. You would just walk away. It was an act of infanticide, and India was practicing things like this. Uh, the elderly were also targeted uh, through euthanasia, or murder, if you want to use that word, as they would be sent to the river to be exposed and die. Whenever, <coughs> excuse me, whenever the family felt that the, the, their elderly loved one was too much of a burden to take care of, they would just take them down to the river, they just had access to water, and just leave them there. Uh, so what they would do to the infants on the one end of life, they would do to the elderly on the other end of life. Rightly so, William Carey was appalled by these conditions. Not only did you have illiteracy and uneducated populace, and, but you also had a very violent populace who did not take care of its most vulnerable and needy. And through the gospel, he sought to change that. And India today is very different in many ways, no, not limited, but in, very, in many ways because of the work that William Carey did. I want you to think about what happens whenever the gospel shows up. Education rates go through the roof for a very simple reason. We are a religion rooted in story. It's easy to, to, to get religion anywhere you go, even among an illiterate populace, if it's all about rules. Do this, don't do that. Everyone can understand rules. But a religion rooted in story requires reading. And William Carey understood that, that if the populace don't have the Bible in their own language, they will never discover Jesus in their own language. As Christ was incarnated as a man, so too the gospel must incarnate itself into culture. And we do that primarily through language. And so William Carey focused on literacy and education. He also focused on reforming society so that those most vulnerable, the poor, the young, the elderly, they are most protected. Well, that is what has always happened whenever the gospel shows up. Happened here in America, happened in ancient Rome, has happened throughout antiquity, Middle Ages, everywhere else. Wherever you see Christianity launch and to start to get a foothold into society, you will watch what happens to that society. Things begin to improve. 
And that is really where we need to conclude our study of evil. Just to remind you what it is we looked at. We started by looking at the reality of evil. We don't deny that it is real. Uh, we, we, we don't deny it. We don't ignore it. We don't, uh, we, we don't try to justify it. We say evil is evil, and, and we must confront it as such. So we see the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of that sort of stuff. It isn't that evil is just externally, but evil is also internally. And then after that, we talked about the rescue from evil. That is, that despite the brokenness of our society, God himself has entered through the person of Jesus, what we celebrate during Christmas, and he has suffered under the forked tongue of evil, conquering it through, um, through the empty tomb. And this week what we want to see is the redemption of evil. What happens when the gospel takes hold? What is it that, that we see? And, and we get a <coughs> excuse me, we get a picture of that here in Matthew chapter four. It's just a picture of it, but it is a good summary of what Jesus does. Jesus goes in the towns, going throughout all of Galilee. Of course, this is his his home area. This would be like Kentucky to us. Um, and and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And and that gospel is a proclamation that brings with it reformation. You see it there that there's the healing of every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him the sick, those afflicted with diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, those who were paralyzed, and he healed him. So you see what's happening here. The main message is the gospel of the kingdom, whatever that may mean. But what we see is as the gospel advances, the proclamation of the gospel leads to the reformation of society. That when evil is pushed back through the gospel, people's lives change for the better. Now, this is best seen through in the ministry of Jesus and the work of, of, of the church through what we call the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, although Jesus' teaching on the kingdom is his central thought. I think conservative and liberal theologians will agree on that. If you were to summarize the teaching of Jesus in a single uh, phrase, it would be the kingdom of God. Right there. Now, we may have to discuss what that means, and we will do that this evening, but, but that is Jesus' message in a nutshell. You read the four Gospels, and it's saturated with this thought. However, we Christians rarely talk about it, particularly conservative Christians rarely talk about it. Let me give you a few examples here. You see it here, Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. Notice his purpose was to proclaim the gospel good news of the kingdom. So what I want us to see here, because I think this is a key verse, is you cannot separate the kingdom from the kingdom's message. The king's message, that, that there is no kingdom without the gospel. There is no gospel without the kingdom. Jesus comes proclaiming the news of the kingdom. And he is the king of the kingdom. And, and in order to enter the kingdom, you must come by the means of the road called the gospel. This is the big idea that we really have to see. Now, we should pause here and say that the kingdom of God was so central to Jesus' teaching, it is the cause of his execution. The Romans did not care about Jesus' supposed crime of blasphemy, which is what he was condemned of under the Jewish law. Rather, when they heard that he was claiming to be um, uh, a king who brought with him a kingdom, suddenly they took an interest. Let me give you just a few examples here. Matthew 27, 11, uh, uh, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yup, yup. That's the modern translation. Show did. Show am the king of the Jews. Mark chapter 15, the inscription against him, what was the sign? This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. 
king of the Jews. So when the Jews came, they didn't like that sign. They said, well, you need to put there he proclaimed to be the king. He called himself the king. So they're not denying that central to his thought and his teaching was the self-proclamation of kingship. What about John chapter 19? Day of preparation of the Passover. That's a loaded phrase that we can't discuss now. It was the sixth hour, so this is noon o'clock. Uh, he said to the Jews, behold, your king. This is Pilate. Now, you understand, like, this dude's on trial, supposedly because he's a king. So he brings them out all beaten and battered and bloodied and everything else. And, and he says, almost in a mockery, here's Pilate, the governor, the king of this area. And he says, here's your king. There he is. I, I, I think this proves the point. He ain't much of a king. No one's fought for him. No one's defended him. He has no army. He has no power. has no influence. What is it to be scared of? Look what I can do to him. That was quite easy. And they cried out away with him. Crucify him. And he says, do you want me to crucify your king? This is clearly at the center of what leads to his execution. Um, now, we need to add here, if, if this is central, not just to the teaching of Jesus, but is central to the teaching of the early church. One of the things people like to do is they like to say, Jesus taught on the kingdom. Uh, Paul talked about sin and salvation. And so what you have are two Christianities. Well, that's garbage, frankly. Is, is, is you can see the overlap uh, of, of both. And uh, Paul makes that, you just read them. He's clearly been influenced by the teachings of Jesus. But let me give you just one example of this reference to the kingdom of God. Acts 20, this is the end of Acts, the very end of Acts. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Just pause there. What is Paul's emphasis? He's, he is in Roman chains, right? He's in Rome. That's how the book ends. Uh, and uh, what is he doing? He is proclaiming the gospel to everyone who would hear it. The message of salvation. That's the gospel. But then you'll notice there, verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with boldness without hindrance. So you see that his message of salvation is tied directly to his proclamation of a kingdom. Now, where is Paul when he's, pro when he's proclaiming the kingdom? He's in the capital of a kingdom. This is central to Christian thought, and we could give other examples of it. Of this. So the question we have before us then, what is the kingdom of God? And you could take an entire class on that in cemetery. It's a massive issue. Books have been printed on it. And rightly so, because this is the central thought of Christianity in many ways. Let me give you just two basic ideas in general. The first thing we need to see here is that the kingdom of God is future. That is to say that when we speak of the kingdom, we are speaking of something we are still waiting for it to arrive. After all, this morning, isn't that what we saw with Paul? Remember, Paul in Romans 8 says that our momentary sufferings pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us. Well, that's language of kingdom. It's a language of kingdom. Is that I, I can persevere through what it is I'm going through now if I know there's a far greater kingdom still, still waiting for me. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, Baptist John Bunyan, that's basically the premise of it. That when Christian goes on this journey, he is constantly saying, I am heading towards the celestial city. I'm, I'm, that, that's, that's the aim. And so I don't need to get distracted by Vanity Fair and uh, uh, the giant uh, despair's castle and stuff like that. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going there. I'm going there. And this is consistent with what it is we find in the New Testament. Let me just wear you out with Bible verses so you can know for sure I'm not making this up. Matthew 7, verse 21. Now, to everyone who says to me, by the way, Paul's here. I want you to notice Jesus here is uh, uh, picturing himself as a king upon a throne at the end of days. This is deity language. Because I don't know if you know this or not, 
No one's going to be on that throne but, but God. I mean, you and I ain't going to be on it. Only God is. And, and Jesus here is saying, I'm the one on the throne. And people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here he's describing the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's gospel, kingdom of heaven, as something that we're still waiting for. Something still in the future. In Matthew chapter 8, the next chapter, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now think about it. Um, when are you and I going to get to recline with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest of the boys? Well, ain't in this world. Why would they want to come back here? No, 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 we're, we're waiting for the day. Because I got questions I want to ask them. And, and we, we will have, have that opportunity. Matthew chapter 9, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Notice there that the idea of entering the kingdom is contrasted with entering into hell. Now, you'd rather be blind and maimed. Now, now, well, we don't have time to go into to all that. But you can see clearly this is something still future. Mark chapter 14 um, yeah, Mark 14, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, this is the Lord's Supper, until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Again, the idea is that I drink of this, which is a foretaste of the kingdom, and the day will come that we together will drink it in the kingdom. It's still something in the future. So clearly the kingdom of God is future. And, and usually when we think of the kingdom of God, this is what comes to mind. The day will come when I will be with God in his kingdom. And, you know, we may say something like that. That's usually what it is that we, we have in mind. And it certainly is biblical. After all, Revelation portrays Jesus as a king coming to rule and reign uh, with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. And he sets up that kingdom. And that is a future hope that we have. But here's the second truth we need to know about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is present. And this is why people hate theology so much. <laughs> How can something be both future and present? And this is really the beauty of the kingdom of God. It's, it's because we can simultaneously hold to both. And many in Jesus' parables, he gives the impression that the kingdom of God has already arrived. In fact, he, he describes it not as something that will arrive suddenly, but something that will arrive slowly. Think about it. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's already been planted. You don't see it. You're not impressed by it, but give it time. Give it time. The implication is the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is like leaven, and you may not see it, but it's here. It's here. The kingdom of God is like a sower who went out the sow uh, field, and some of the seed landed on good soil and bad soil, and somewhere in between soil. But you see, it's still seed. It's, it's, you may not see it now, and, and, and it's still going to take time, but, but it's here. It is here right now is, 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 is the premise of, of what it is he is saying. And if you still think I'm, uh, if you think I'm exaggerating here, maybe we should talk to demons. As a general rule, I don't recommend that, but let's talk to those who have already spoken. Here's Matthew 12. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That Jesus' point of casting out there is that when Jesus casts out demons, he does what no one else can. Without incantations, without the mystical stuff, without uh, special prayers or crucifixes or incense or, or special dances or any of that stuff. He simply says, the king has come, get out of here, you don't belong. 
And Jesus rightly says that if you have witnessed this, if the demons obey me, then the implication is clear. The kingdom of God has already come upon you. It's not something we're waiting for. It's here. Or in Luke 11, uh, uh, it's the same thing. If by the finger of God, I cast out demons. Now you see he's getting more specific. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We can see something similar in Luke chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, is what we're talking about. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. That is, you know, signs in the sky, all that sort of stuff. Nor would they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. One of the reasons we know that's true is because the king of the kingdom was in their midst. The king of the kingdom. You realize that if you're a CEO of some major corporation, or even not even a major corporation, what you'll find in the budget of, of, or the salary, whatever it is, you'll find that there's a lot of generosity to travel expenses, hotel expenses, um, and like what they purchase there, all that sort of stuff. You don't know why that is? Wherever the CEO goes, the company goes with them. So if, you, if Walt, the, the, the dude of Walt Disney's here, whatever his name is, the guy who forgot how to make good movies, and he shows up here, then we could say that the Walt Disney Company were in, was in our midst. Now, it's one dude out of millions, I'm guessing they have. But because he is representative of Walt Disney or Walmart or Speedway, whatever it might be, so too when Jesus shows up and he says, we're looking for the kingdom, he goes, some of you aren't, you're looking too hard. The king's here. Therefore, the kingdom has already come among you. The kingdom of God is present. It is here right now. So what then is the kingdom? We, re- we recognize it is future, it is present. That is certainly true, but what is it? Here's, here's my simple definition. The kingdom of God is the reign of God in the world. It's a simple definition. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, the reign of God in the world. This kingdom can never be destroyed and it will never end. Its king, Jesus, sits upon a throne and will reign forever. But ultimately, what we need to see is the kingdom of God is that wherever God rules and reigns, there you will find the kingdom of God. Wherever God rules and reigns, you will find his kingdom. This means that the kingdom of God is both visible and invisible. This is why people don't like theology. It is both simultaneously visible and invisible. Think about how it is visible. It's visible primarily through the work of the church and the redemption of sinners. When sinners are redeemed, lives are transformed. The example I I was thinking the other day is uh, I'm a big fan of the Duck Dynasty show. Have you watched all those yet? I mean, they're just goofy. Um, I just absolutely love it. It's all staged, of course, but uh, it's kept me entertained over the years. And and, but the premise of the story, not for A&E, but but particularly for us, is is you have a patriarch, Phil Robertson who is as barbarian, uh, barbarian pagan as you will find. Although I love the story that he's, he's, he's the starting quarterback ahead of, of Hall of Fame Terry Bradshaw. You know the story? He's the starting quarterback in, I think, Louisiana Tech, wherever he played, over Terry Bradshaw, Hall of Fame quarterback. And he's there in practice. He looks up, sees a bunch of ducks flying, and he goes, what am I doing here? Went to hunt ducks for the rest of his life. Right? Now that's... That's a story and a half. You can get a reality show if you do something like that. I'm not recommending it. He went and just got crawfish and lived like that. But you know the story of Phil Robinson, right? What happened to him? Jesus got a hold of him. I want you to think about not, not, not just the financial success he's experienced. Of course, that, 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 that's maybe part of it. Think about his family. His marriage was, in, was, was, was a wreck. 
He was abusive. He was a drunk. He was violent. He was foul. Then Jesus got a hold of him. And what happens? You raise four boys. You're doing all that they do. Which, and they have kids. Do so you imagine what it must be like for Phil Robertson every Christmas, Thanksgiving, Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever? Here you have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of family members who call you dad and pawpaw and whatever else. And here they all gather, dozens of people. And it looks like this because Jesus got a hold of somebody. That's the kingdom made visible. Maybe you yourself know what it's like to see your marriage saved because Jesus got a hold of you. Your home life would be better because Jesus got a hold of you. What is that? That's the kingdom of God made visible. That's all that we mean by that. Where God redeems sinners, he changes life. And that's evident for us all to see. But it isn't just visible. The kingdom of God is invisible. The Lord is working and moving in ways right now that we do not see. Isn't that good news? That is happening right now as, as we sit here. Or you're Googling Keith Green, where God is moving in incredible ways. Incredible ways. That should encourage us. Somewhere in northern Africa right now, God is moving. Somewhere in Brandon's areas in Argentina, God is moving. Somewhere in China, Turkey, Iran, secular west, the kingdom of God is on the march. This is why we, 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 we may not like what it is that we see now. But we should go to our grave knowing things are not as they will one day be. Because the kingdom of God is on the march. And one of the things we Americans do is we, we, we like to think our experience here is universal. And so if we see the decline of Christianity in the West, that must mean Christianity is on the decline. All contraire, as the theologian would say. It's not. The gospel's doing just fine without your help, by the way. It may be declining here in the West. Go to China right now. Go to Iran right now. Go throughout the Middle East and Asia. Go throughout all of the East. What are you going to find? The kingdom of God is booming. We even see in small hints in the secular West, Portugal, Spain, some others, where there seems to be a, 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 a new interest in it. Uh, one of our members and I were listening to a fascinating podcast that exploring this very issue. That, that there seems to be a renewed interest in Christianity. One of the things, if you, if you follow culture much, is you'll find that as Christianity declines in the West, there is this fundamental understanding that when we lose Christianity, we're losing the culture. What do I mean by that? Equal rights, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, equal justice, love your neighbor, the image of God. Those things we've taken for granted for years upon years. How about education? Can I tell you why education is in bad straits right now? We don't educate. We propagate. Where Christianity comes, you see with William Carey, you're going to see an increase in education. Why? Because this is God's creation. Let's, the more we learn about God's creation, the more we'll learn about the, our creator and redeemer. Well, remember this when we mourn the evil of our age. And there is much to mourn over. We Christians fall for the trap that if we aren't doing something massive, if we aren't pushing our weight around, then we're not doing the Lord's work. One of the best things you can do to uh, promote the kingdom of God is to love your spouse, raise your children, fear God, and love your neighbor. The simple things is the invisible kingdom made visible. That is, that is what, what, what changes lives. 
And we become particularly dangerous when we think that unless we are voting for something, unless we make something illegal, we're not doing the king's work. We got to move on. I, 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 we could do a whole nother sermon. Okay, let's go back to Matthew chapter four. No, no, go up there to verse 17. We didn't read it, Matthew four. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then go down to verse 23. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. You see the connection that, that there is the preaching proclamation is that when we are changed internally, there's a change externally. So then what does the kingdom look like when it shows up? What does it look like? How is it made visible practically? A couple of things here. First of all, holiness. Um, there it is, holiness. We see it there in Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We can look at other passages. Matthew 5. Um, that's where I got my order. Matthew 5. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. John the Baptist was asked regarding, uh, uh, you know, the soldiers come, what should we do? The Pharisees come, what should we do? The tax collectors come, what should we do? And what does he do? Uh, what you need to do is you need to repent. That means you don't go back to doing the things that you were doing. Um, so, uh, so the uh, tax collectors collect no more than you're authorized to do. And then soldiers uh, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Well, I'm glad we Americans don't have to practice that, that last part, aren't you? Here, here's the point. People should know who you are um, uh, by, um, by how we carry ourselves. Uh, I remember when, when my wife and I went to Trinidad on a mission trip, uh, we sat down to eat, and, and the locals were making fun of the way we were eating. Not that we were eating like barbarians or we drank our tea with our thinking or anything like that. What they thought was weird was we ate the meat first and the sides last. They ate the sides first and the meat last. And they're not wrong. If the meat is the best part of the meal, and it almost always is if you don't have macaroni and cheese— like good mac and cheese at that. Like mom's mac and cheese. But, but wouldn't you, don't you want to eat the last thing last? We were talking about this this morning, right? That, that you want to eat the best thing last. For me, it's usually mac and cheese with some bacon bits on top of it. Oh, the queso cheese instead of the, the yellow cheddar cheese. Oh, now we're talking. Right? You save that for last. You want your, your last taste buds to be that mac and cheese. Well, they make so, so there's a, you see a bunch of Americans just down on the fried chicken as God would have us to do first. And they're thinking, oh, you're not from around here, are you? We can tell by the way you eat. So too, Christians, people in the kingdom should be identified by how they carry themselves. So, so where you see the kingdom of God, you'll see holiness, morality, uh, righteousness. Where you see the decline of the kingdom of God or the absence of the kingdom of God, what you will find is barbarism. If only I can think of a good example of that. Secondly, you will find love. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his uh, disciples, the 70 disciples, out to preach uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So in Luke 10, it says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So here it is in the present context. So the kingdom of God is here. So you're gonna heal and with that comes the kingdom. Now, after they return, uh, Jesus celebrates with them. But later a man shows up, all in this context with a, an important question. This is Luke 10. A lawyer stood up and said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, they were sent to proclaim the kingdom. And part of the kingdom message is eternal life. Why? Because the kingdom of God is present. Yes, it's future. What do he say? Uh, well, you know, uh, what does the Bible say? Love God with all your heart, all that sort of stuff. What's Jesus' message? Yeah, go do that. Go love. Of course, the problem is you ain't loving God with all your, uh, your entire being. 
That's why we need repentance. That's why we need a redeemer. Or we can go to, to, to Matthew 5. Can come back to Matthew. We're Matthew 4. Turn, turn, back, turn to Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48. Um, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. So, so, so you see his fundamental message. You can keep reading there for, for more context. You see his fundamental message is love. That those who are, are citizens in God's kingdoms are those who are holy, and in their holiness they live with a holy love. A love modeled by Christ at the cross. We, we just got to move on. The third is peace. Peace. I won't give all the details in case this person may just be flipping and uh, hear this. Um, but uh, back where we served for six and a half years, um, uh, we'll, we'll, there's, a, there's a handful of people we try to make sure that when we're in town, we go see. You understand this. And uh, this one gentleman I, I like to go see. I spent a lot of time with, with him when we were there. Uh, sort of counseled him through, through some stuff. Built a good relationship with him. Was very kind to me and my family. And so I went. was by myself one day and I went and hanging out with him. He, he says, Preacher, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to tell me, I need you to, to, to prevent me from just declaring war on the lefties. And he was serious. This, 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 wasn't, this wasn't metaphorical war. He's like, when do we get the guns out? I've had enough. I've had enough. And let me just warn you that, that the more divided we become, the more tribal we become, this is in our future. It may not be very long. I, mean, I frankly even look at Ireland right now. They're at war themselves, and that's coming. And, and I remember that moment, I'm thinking, if you would pick any passage of the Bible just about, you would be rebuked. You'd be rebuked. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, are we to be people of war and violence. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I do believe in self-defense. I do believe in, in a, a certain context of war. I believe in just war theory as developed by Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, and others. yes. I'm talking about in everyday life, when you look at your neighbor, it is unacceptable for us to think our country would be better if they were dead or if I exercise power over them because I'm better than them. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Watch it particularly. It's already there on the left. It's coming up on the right. And that's where you're going to get your conflict. I could prove this pretty simply. We looked at it this past year. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Choose a king over a president and you'll be a peacemaker. Choose a kingdom over a nation. You'll be a peacemaker. Choose God over government. You'll be a peacemaker. You'll be a peacemaker. Well, here's the last joy. Joy. Matthew 13, 44. King of, of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells his stuff. Why? Because what he found is more precious than what he had. Isn't that the gospel? What he found was more precious than what he had. Let me give you just another example. Mark chapter four. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. Uh, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Now, now, you don't want to be in the rocky ground, I get. But I love the idea is that when the word is received, it is received with joy. Those who are in the kingdom have a joy the circumstances cannot shake. Have a joy that when nations rise and fall, it will not be shaken. Isn't that what we want? This is why I will never understand Christians 
talking about the love of Jesus and the joy we have in our hearts with a scowl. We should be the first people to smile, the first people quick to laugh, and the first people to live with infectious, contagious joy. I know I get in trouble for all my jokes and stuff, but that's why. We should be able to laugh. And there should be more laughter when Christians gather than anywhere else in this world. Well, I'm already late. Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There it is in a nutshell. How does the invisible kingdom become visible? I mentioned William Carey earlier. He's an obvious pick. Can I give you another obvious pick? A man by the name of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce is the nephew of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Actually, you need to credit John Newton for Wilberforce's story. Wilberforce was an up-and-coming politician. He was in Parliament during the uh, War of Independence here in the United States. Um, of course, he's on the British side. And, in fact, his best friend, uh, was it William Pitt, is that his name, became prime minister. Very influential guy. Uh, but he was a pagan. He was lost until Jesus got a hold of him. And when Jesus got a hold of him, William Wilberforce was ready to quit politics. You can understand the temptation, can't you? Because the question is, is if God has called me to salvation, God has called me to redemption, why would I want to spend my time here? So he went to go visit his uncle, John Newton. Remember, John Newton had been a slave trader. John Newton was a bad dude. And gave his life to Jesus and eventually became a sort of monk. Uh, not a full-fledged monk, but something like that. And Wilberforce went to him and says, you know, Uncle John, I'm ready to leave everything behind. And, and his, his advice was pretty simple. He says, don't you think God has put you in this position for a reason? What are you going to do with it? How's God going to be glorified in where God has you right now, where you are? So Wilberforce went home and he started to pray about what it is God wants him to do. And he made a list of several things, but really just one is the one worth highlighting. That is the abolition of slavery in his lifetime. You understand that America went to war for this issue, and rightly so. Britain didn't. Britain didn't simply because a single believer, convicted by the king, wanted to make the kingdom of God visible. And the African slave was his equal. You understand how radical that was in the late 18th, early 19th century. If you don't know how radical that is, read a history book about the United States. It's a radical notion. And how did he get there? Not through philosophy, not through evolution, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's most remembered for. He repeatedly submitted bills to abolish the trade. Every year, he would bring it up in session, and every year, he'd get thrown out. He died, however, three days after the uh, slavery uh, was abolished. The, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed by the House of Commons. Three days after that. It's been decades fighting for this. And then when he finds out it's passed, your lifelong mission will be realized. He died. He died. This is what we mean by the redemption of evil. We need not surrender to it so long as Christ has conquered the grave and he rules from his throne. 
The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God has come. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so confident